Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. It's often said that the time in our lives can often pass without us noticing. Old age can come before we realize it, and it brings with it new elements to our own daily lives that we couldn't have anticipated before. Observed from a distance and growing old can seem like a universal experience, but observed up close, it becomes clear that the different ways people age are as varied and unique as the people themselves, and these differences can come from within and without. Whether you get to live out your twilight years in a comfortable retirement home in the country or an understaffed inner-city hospital, these experiences will be profoundly different and likely had different paths that led to them. Viewed in this way, aging is seen not as some eternal experience that is the same for all people, but as a fundamental part of our politics and economic dynamics, for better and for worse. The COVID crisis of the last year has brought to light how vulnerable our elderly are, how understaffed our care facilities are, and how much needs to change to provide lives of safety, comfort, and dignity to our elders. But in many ways, all this crisis has done is exacerbated certain tensions and antagonisms that were already there, barely concealed by the relentless optimism of neoliberal technocrats. Changing these systems will mean rethinking the aging process and connecting it with broader questions traditionally raised by the fields of critical theory and radical critiques of political economy. Diving right into this project are my guests today. Carol Estes and Nicholas DiCarlo, here to discuss their recent publication, Aging A to Z, Concepts Towards Emancipatory Gerontology, from Routledge in 2019. Styled as a sort of dictionary, the book has entries for a number of terms you would expect a book like this to have. Ableism, home care, and retirement all make appearances. Readers will be surprised, however, by the number of entries that also make appearances. Climate change, colonialism, epistemology, Leninist strategy, and praxis all make appearances as well. This book, then, is incredibly broad in scope and attempts to force readers to realize the ways in which aging is affected that go beyond one's immediate concern, bringing a new layer of understanding to the phrase, the personal is political. Speaking as someone who has spent the entirety of the COVID crisis working in elderly care, this book was a joyful revelation to flip through and should be considered critical reading by anyone impacted by aging. Carol Estes has a long and distinguished career in both academia and activism, she is Professor Emerita of Sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. It was there that she founded the Institute for Health and Aging. She has written numerous books and articles on the politics of aging, including the co-authored The Long-Term Care Crisis, which was a 1994 most important book for Choice Magazine. She is also the recipient of numerous academic honors and is the former president of the Gerontology the Gerontological Society of America, the American Society on Aging, and the Association for Gerontology and Higher Education. Nicholas DiCarlo writes about aging and social policy at the Institute for Health and Aging at the University of California, San Francisco. They have a master's of social work and a private psychotherapy practice in Oakland. And Nick DiCarlo, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having us, Stephen. Oh, and I go by Nicholas. Oh, Nicholas, thank you. Um, all right, so to kick things off, um, I was wondering if you two could introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your background and how some of that might have informed this book you have here. I am very fortunate to have uh, come of age intellectually in the middle of the uh, crises of uh, the the Vietnam War uh, protests, feminist protests, uh, the whole civil rights issues uh, and uh, voter issues going to Columbia, South Carolina and uh, 
being uh, terrified by voter registration there. It's been uh, wonderful, however, that my experience in those early social movements uh, completely challenged me as a Southern girl who learned uh, to say nothing, uh, be silent, and obedient. Uh, and I found my revolutionary self peeking out as I was marching around federal buildings. Uh, my dad was a federal judge, and he certainly did not know that I was doing that. But uh, I was uh, becoming enraged at Brandeis University, where I was uh, working as a research assistant after my master's degree. Um, and it, it really took me on a policy wonk uh, trip that I've been on uh, with policy activism for decades since then. The foundation, really the foundation of my learning and developing political economy in my first book was The Aging Enterprise, which was a critical examination of uh, old age policy and services. And I bumped into Nicholas along the way, thank goodness, <laughs> for our intergenerational work together. I was really lucky to meet Carol when I finished my MSW in New York. I moved out to the Bay and a colleague put us in touch. Um, I grew up in West Virginia and went to New York for my undergrad at Vassar, studied media studies and film, was very interested in representation and oppression, um, specifically about fat oppression. And my MSW wasn't specifically focused on aging. I was more interested in working with um, refugees and um, diverse populations across the globe. But um, a mentor put me in touch with Carol, and we got started on a chapter that was talking about the history of, I think it was um, how critical gerontology came of age, sort of post-World War II. And it was an infusion of the anti-fascist Jewish social workers who were getting into the field and also coinciding with the burgeoning social um, civil rights movement. So that was sort of our introduction to each other. And then we got started on A to Z pretty shortly after. Yeah, so that kind of leads right question. into talking about... The, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say I neglected go ahead, if to you say have that, that uh, I graduated from Stanford I uh, have a master's from Southern Methodist University uh, and uh, a doctorate from University of California, San Diego. Yeah, excellent. So I get, I want to turn to the book itself. Um, so when I first started looking through this book, one thing that kind of threw me off at first was how uh, broad it is in scope. Um, it goes well beyond just talking about terms I would have immediately thought of when I thought about like critically thinking about old age and aging. Um, you cover things like media and political economy, you know, the nature of history, um, lots of terms that I wouldn't initially think needed to be in this book. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the goal of the book and the reason for such a broad approach, such a broad scope. Could you talk about that a bit? Yes. Um, the experience of my writing The Aging Enterprise, uh, which was a critical study of uh, the Older Americans Act and aging services, was an eye-opener and the medical industrial complex and uh, really the abjection of older people, the stigmatization, the ageism, and all of those issues arose. And I uh, spoke of the empowerment imperative for uh, the field of aging and for practitioners in that era. And it was uh, very much a commitment to going beyond the present into the kind of crazy worlds we were finding ourselves uh, in. And it, the book started when Hillary Clinton was supposed to become president and uh, it, it, it rode through much of the uh, Trump administration and the, the uprooting of everything uh, that we took as reality or that uh, was 
taken as reality by and large. And it was something that called out to us to require uh, wild uh, excursions into new concepts and new issues and old issues that had been festering but not dealt with in terms of inequality, race, class, gender, and those were the foundational pieces that we started with. Uh, so Nicholas, why don't you take it from here for? Yeah, I think the 2016 election was definitely part of us um, taking it big. That's one thing that Carol's really shared with me, C. Wright Mills' concept of, of going big. Um, and one thing that we really wanted to, to do is to show that age isn't just a study of old age. Gerontology is looking at all of us as we age and the intergenerational bonds that exist. There's so much of the neoliberal agenda that dehistoricizes social movements and cuts people off from their histories. And I really see this kind of broad depth of scope as helping um, combat some of that ahistoricity. Yeah, so this book is kind of taking what or f- kind of fits into um, the broad umbrella of what we often call critical theory. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit in more detail about what you see as the relationship between critical theory and thinking critically about aging. Um, and more broadly, we could ask you know questions about like political economy and the relationship to aging and vice versa. How does aging kind of fit in this field, in your view? Critical theory is is uh, devoted to uh, attacking oppression and uh, objectification and the things that that bring down humanity and all of all living things, including uh, the environment and air, water, fire, everything. Uh, Although uh, it has uh, now become, and we are we are working toward the emancipatory phase, which is the concern with respect and justice and uh, equality and race, class, ethnicity, genders uh, anew in the in the current phase that we find. And emancipatory work uh, has basically the idea that there is no uh, value-neutral knowledge and that power relations inform knowledge and our language is power and power constructions of reality. Uh, And research is basically a political activity and social oppressions are not natural or fixed. So social change uh, and um, resistance movements, social movements uh, are part of the discourse, and the field is being built as we uh, speak. And I would add that this was especially uh, aging study was ready for it. There was so defined by medicalization and functionalism. And these ageist ideas about older adulthood being a state of being diminished, losing opportunity, and sort of accepting the natural consequences of um, growing into irrelevance. So there were many opportunities within gerontology to talk about power relations and to bring in critical concepts. Yeah, jumping right off of that, um, one thing that's often associated uh, with uh, growing older is various forms of decline. They can be physical, they can be cognitive, they can be emotional, and often those can kind of feed into one another in various ways. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, talk about some of those different uh, paths people's lives can take and how critical theory can help us think more critically about these changes people go through as they grow older. Ageism and ab- abjection are examples of concepts which uh, basically stigmatize the elderly, pigeonhole uh, the whole, make make all elders seem uh, worthless, useless, as Maggie Kuhn, who founded the, co-founded the Gray Panthers, used to say, uh, useless, toothless, mindless, uh, in, infants, uh, infantilization of 
elders, which is basically uh, a form of learned helplessness that is pervade uh, across society. And the whole jokester stuff about aging we see every day. Uh, and, and this kind of uh, treatment is very influential on how the elderly view themselves. And uh, we know from research that the lack of confidence in one's ability uh, and treatment of being one as infantile, talked over, talked about in front of them, uh, demeaned, uh, not talked with at all, uh, is very disabling and uh, enabling of further loss of cognition and capabilities and uh, empowerment. I'd add that we also see that manifest with social policy, that a lot of the fight is already lost to the, these defeatist attitudes, that social security can't exist, that um, resources are too scarce. And that sort of fits right alongside with, um, with the functionalist framework of aging as a process of decline. Why would you give people who can't contribute to these really narrow definitions of, of, work value and labor, any of the, the benefits of society. I think this really speaks to sort of the fascist undergirdings of our, of our labor ideology. Yeah, I want to jump right off that to another thing I wanted to ask, which was uh, the value of non-productive life. Um, how do you see uh, fields like critical theory helping us think about uh, life, particularly in old age, when it's maybe not as economically productive, but um, obviously we want to say still has value. How do we kind of challenge some of that stigma and think more critically about the value of life when it's, you know, maybe no longer producing in the traditional sense we think about it, but we we want to say is still value, valuable. Can you speak to that a bit? The value uh, of of labor. Uh, is also determined by uh, our society's market logics and uh, productivity, uh, the ideological commitment to uh, amassing uh, wealth and income as uh, what is productive. And there are so many, uh, it's like an erasure of the entire history of generations that have contributed and built, including the ones present and coming along, building our society and the advances that we have, being denied, invisibilized, rendered uh, irrelevant or non-existent. And it's very much uh, what is uh, so denigrating about the the attacks on Social Security and Medicare is not earned. Uh, when in fact we've all paid into those programs of social insurance uh, and committed to the economies that we have, uh, terrible as they are right at this moment. But the fact is that our entire society and advancement as well as uh, our stigmata on race and, and on patriarchy and on uh, genders uh, is something that uh, is very much invoked in our policy on aging. And I'm very taken with the concept uh, of policy violence. And this book is a lot about policy violence, which speaks to how policy puts down, uh, breaks down, ignores, uh, destroys communities and peoples. I think one aspect of ageism, too, is this idea that um, you're participating in your own, um, an attack against a future self. When we're not valuing older adults as people who are holding valuable knowledge or um, holding a function for our mental well-being, I see that people who have no experience with caregiving or have not had any exposure to older adults are terrified of aging. 
And that leads to the kind of hopelessness and nihilism where people are um, more quick to accept the destruction of the commons and the political crises of the day. I think elders are really an important part of of resisting the political domination. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to ask is uh, the question of agency. Um, so obviously in their personal lives, as people get older, they will struggle to kind of be able to take care of themselves and manage all their affairs. But I think there's also a question of larger political forms of agency, the ways people can organize themselves, have policy directed in a way that's favorable or at the very least not harmful towards them and their interests. Um, and I, I suspect that, uh, you know, this is going to, there's going to be a lot of questions as COVID clears up where we're going to need to kind of rethink a lot of these things. But um, I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, agency and its relationship to old age and vice versa. Um, how do you see uh, agency being impacted by one's age? Well, agency is absolutely critical. It is the possibility uh, of uh, social change and agency operates on uh, so many levels. So it's it's includes, but is well beyond the individual. And that's what social movements and the uh, really wonderful uh, resistance movements that have been generated uh, in this last saga uh, of uh, our policy under the current uh, administration, not the current administration, the prior uh, administration, and the, the extent to which agency is now something within grasp again, as it was in earlier times when I was marching around federal buildings and boycotting and going to do voter registration. It's, it's as though we've gone back in time while we've zoomed forward in time at the same thing. And the structural and systemic roots of things uh, are becoming of, of our way of life and how people are shut out and cut out uh, and have, have uh, very little capacity for uh, participating in society fully and therefore agency, but also how our institutions, all of our institutions of the state, how, how uh, we've had a president, uh, uh, now a past president, who has shown us the cruelty and the, the tools and, and uh, uh, the uses of the state in, in horrific ways. And they, they have really reached out to so many millions of us to join together and understand that we can and must make a difference. We, we must make the, the change that, that we seek. I would say that, especially for old age, we can't really talk about agency with, without also thinking about ableism, that so much of what's written in the framework of what we imagine someone capable of being doing or, or giving them opportunities to do or um, accommodations to do is um, such a critical component of who has that opportunity to step up and be in the room and um, use their voice. And one aspect of, of the last four years I've been particularly interested in is when people are deluded about their capacity to act and have a false sense of safety and belonging one term that we introduced in A to Z was delirium. And this was right on the heels of the Trump election. I think we were working on it before, trying to get away from a medicalized understanding and thinking about it more as a sort of social and psychic breakdown. And I had gotten into Derrida's conception of delirium as a framework to understand German Jews who were remaining in Nazi Germany and kept insisting that it was safe. Um, they felt that they had the agency to, to remain and to thrive. And we've seen, especially in these last four years, this delirium about make America great has been um, so destructive for people thinking that this is their pathway to have an opportunity to act. Um, not sure if I have a cherry to put on top of that. 
yeah, no, we can we can move along. Um, another thing I want to bring up is uh, thinking about aging as something that everyone experiences, but people across different uh, places along the spectrum of gender, sexuality, class, and other forms of identity will invariably kind of uh, complicate how everyone experiences that in different ways. So it's simultaneously a very universal experience, but also I'm wondering if you could kind of talk a bit about how different people will experience it in very different ways based on their place in society. Well, a major uh, piece of work in the field has been uh, developing the theory of cumulative advantage and disadvantage. And the findings, uh, instead of uh, homogenization, that there is uh, increased disadvantage uh, if one is disadvantaged and increased advantage if one is advantaged. And Dale Danifer and uh, a number of other scholars have uh, been on the forefront of this very important work, which has identified that uh, disadvantage is something uh, and advantage. They're both... Uh, experienced across the life course, and people, of course, have advantages and disadvantages, but they accumulate across time. And it used to be that aging theory was everybody uh, became more equal with age. Now that's completely disputed uh, with research and uh, is uh, very much part of the understanding that Whatever uh, happens, even as early if you get into the the gene environment work with telomeres, even as early as being in the womb, injury and abuse and uh, uh, poverty and lack of education can uh, harm, uh, be a harm that is accentuated across the generations of time that one in which one lives, uh, assuming um, that they have a, a, a cumulative effect over time. And this is a major period piece of work that points to where, where does resilience and where does uh, all sorts of opportunity for improvements uh, uh, be in some uh predicaments because as if we're whatever our uh, mapping is of advantage and disadvantage that that, that we're going to get more and more of the advantage if we're advantaged and we're going to get more and more of disadvantage if we're disadvantaged and this obviously has huge implications for uh, race and class and uh, genders and all of the uh, opportunities that we could have, which is just played right into the whole COVID thing with the inequalities that are uh, evident in every every kind of way with chronic illnesses and uh, actually the decline in life expectancy, massive decline in life expectancy in, the, in 2020 by five years, uh, uh, a huge for, for African-Americans, but also decline in life expectancy, which is mushroomed in terms of amount for uh, Latino and Latina um, peoples. So it's, it's uh, a very uh, prolific and important uh, set of work that is going on. And we were also in, in our A to Z work, uh, we're taking it further to not only uh, is it happening a cumulative advantage and disadvantage across individual life cycles, and uh, it is happening in terms of exploitation and uh, labor uh, uh, disadvantage and income, wealth inequality, all of these things have mushroomed at huge levels. So the individual and the society uh, and the interaction is is incredibly important as well. One way that we see inequality stratified is also through the social policy that 
either values or doesn't value caregiving work and how many people have to exit the workforce or work reduced hours to provide care for their networks. And if you don't have wealth, then that work definitely isn't paid. And those are years that you're not earning for your social security contributions. So we see it, it baked into social policy that these, um, these trends of cumulative disadvantage and advantage are really um, structurally supported. And that's part of the policy violence. And as Carol was saying, this is also, you know, sets up the conditions for exploitation. When people live with precarity, when they're vulnerable, when they can't say no to a job or um, a political reality because they're fighting day to day to survive, that's a, a great form of social control. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to ask about is um, rethinking aging as a culmination of a particular sort of lifetime, thinking about aging as a product of the, maybe the job you had, the sorts of experiences you had throughout your life and how that will affect how you experience uh, your final years. Um, I, I think oftentimes we think of aging as something that will happen eventually and not something that is always happening and always kind of accumulating in various ways. And I think uh, your background in kind of critical theory and critical sociology is uh, perfectly addressed to kind of help us rethink aging in this way. So can you speak to that way of rethinking aging that I think is kind of uh, implicit throughout uh, some of the uh, passages in your book? A lot of uh, talk about aging is about aging across the life course. And we are aging from the moment of uh, conception to uh, actually until death. And uh, this is a uh, process that has inputs along the way, but it definitely what what happens to children and this gene environment work and the work on telomeres is is an example is Blackburn, the Nobel Prize winner on this work, how important it is the telomeres, which actually show uh, uh, the the shortness or length of strands of of DNA and how these uh, may be uh, improved actually and this is part of the wonderful potentiality of joining society cells in society uh, all their although there are plenty of pitfalls to getting too biomedical and uh, too much. Uh, scientization uh, without the proper attention to the social factors that are involved. One of the entries in A to Z is retirement. And we were looking at some of the frameworks for how retirement's framed socially. In Britain, it's, um, the term is redundancy. The idea is that you're no longer needed. So there's someone younger that needs to come in and you're taking up a valuable opportunity. So I think that's one of the, the frameworks for our aging experience kind of baked into the, um, the job as the identity. And one thing that I really appreciated in this project was getting to learn more about the history, that it wasn't until 1986 through an amendment to the Age Discrimination and Employment Act that states were penalized for discriminating against those um, under 61. Yeah, another thing I want to ask about is social life in old age. So uh, obviously with the pandemic, this has, I think, become like abundantly clear in a new way with old people kind of being forced to really isolate uh, much more intensely than usual. But I think in a way it's kind of exacerbating a problem that was already there that um, as you grow older, it can be harder to kind of maintain connections. Um uh, it's harder to get out of your house, harder to kind of spend time and energy connecting with people. It's harder to get to a place where people usually meet like a restaurant or a coffee shop. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, social life in old age and how it connects to a number of the uh, concepts we've been developing. Um, what what are the kind of larger structures that kind of not only push people to isolate, but kind of force them to in a certain way? Well, our society is in many ways uh, segregated uh, and uh, segregated in all sorts of dimensions, but one of them is 
uh, you think about residential living and nursing homes and uh, its opposition in aging in place and aging in community and the and the new uh, perspectives on aging in community and other options. But there's no question that the isolation uh, that one feels is uh, is is likely to be exacerbated. Uh, but also, it's an it's an opportunity for uh, figuring out how to be uh, more connected. But it really means uh, needing an, an more uh, opportunities within one's family structure or community structure or residential structure. In so far as uh, that self isolation is is really. Uh, down to life and death calls for what we must do. And the age segregation goes beyond just where older adults live, but also where they're encouraged to congregate. Maggie Kuhn of the Panthers, the Great Panthers, called senior centers playpens for the elderly. Why should older adults only be given this um, opportunity to congregate with each other? Why is it not baked in or um, available for the rest of, of the community to engage? And I think sort of where we are now in our analysis is also thinking about how gentrification aids and abets this process of segregating older adults out of communities. Where can they afford to live? What are the resources that they can access? And how are people forced into retirement homes or skilled nursing facilities? Because those are the only places they can get their basic needs met. Which speaks to a lack of Elena Porticolona. Oh, go ahead. I was going to add that um, a researcher that we work with, Elena Porticolona, has done some really excellent research about isolation in old age and what older adults want, how um, living alone is often what someone wants, but that doesn't mean that they want a, a life of isolation. And they're forced to either live with other people out of necessity, um, but that also doesn't mean that they get to really leave their houses or um, apartments and, and, and be in the community. Some of these communities older adults live in are dangerous and unsafe for them to, to be out and about. So also the lack of uh, long-term care policy. Yes. The policy is that women will do the work and they will do it at great sacrifice and they will do it uh, until they drop, basically. And it's endless, especially in, in COVID and now with having having children and grandchildren and uh, having to pick up uh, the pace of work to the point that it's completely untenable for women. And of course, women are dropping out of the labor force uh, like crazy. And in fact, the term she session is a concept that is now uh, being bandied about. And but uh, also the the basic fact that there's uh, we we talk about uh, the zero years in Social Security. There's no credit for any time spent in uh, caregiving of elders or uh, spouses or anyone. And we've been talking about this for at least 20 years, maybe 30. Uh, and in fact, I was part of a project that wrote about breaking the glass ceiling in Social Security, which was uh, identifying these issues that are glass ceilings that are on top of uh, the whole pre-existing situation that women find themselves as the as the childbearers and and caregivers. Yeah, one another term that comes up in a couple different forms is that of the generation. Um, and I want to ask about intergenerational understanding, um, kind of helping the young understand the elderly and vice versa. Um, and I want to ask, because I think, obviously, it's nice to have young and old sit down together and chat. But I think that intergenerational understanding is often impeded not just by failing to sit down and talk with one another, but by certain larger structures that kind of guide and define our experience and make it hard for us to hear and understand each other. And 
um, I th- you can just look at how politicians will often try and cater to young or old in different ways. There, there's different interests at stake and different ways of understanding our experiences at, at play. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about uh, how generations might understand themselves, each other, and our current moment and, and how that kind of can lead to certain misunderstandings. I think segregated policies, policies that segregate uh, and categorize uh, different groups uh, for housing or transportation or other things contribute to this. But the intergenerational work is is absolutely essential because we are all in this together. It's it's a basic understanding of a much larger social community and society that uh, where we uh, pick up the pieces and and work uh, toward a larger good and our market logic uh, takeover of the way we think in, in American society and in capitalist society has really uh, quashed the notions of community and social and uh, our responsibility to the whole. Uh, and this is uh, an intergenerational bond that is absolutely essential. And Maggie Kuhn, as Nicholas mentioned, was... Uh, pivotal in creating that understanding that youth and age are in it together and there's discrimination uh, against youth too as uh, and and against uh, baby boomers now is coming online uh, having benefits that they uh, have earned or want to have and this is the bonding issue is very important. Uh, Nicholas? One thing that came up for me when I was listening was this idea of being together in space. And Carol told me this wonderful story about how Maggie Kuhn was um, in the, the anti-war protest, was marching with younger protesters because there was this idea that older adults who were flanking them wouldn't would be able to repel some of the police violence that um, the brutality wouldn't um, would have some respect for older adults. But we've seen now that that's not true. We saw Martin Cugino in Buffalo get struck down with a head wound. And um, I think if we're really going to talk about older adults and younger adults being able to come together, we also have to think about the right to, to protest and how, how that's very uncertain in this curtain in this current state um, where police terror is normalized. Yeah, I think that connects really well to what Carol was saying was about policy violence. I thought also of um, the representative from Texas saying, you know, we need to just kind of sacrifice old people for the sake of the market. Um, uh, Just that kind of political brutality um, that comes down so hard on old people. And, um, uh, but you know, jumping kind of similarly off that, I want to talk about um, uh, systems for making aging more comfortable. Um, so obviously, as we've been talking about at a couple places, as one grows older, it can be harder to just maintain a basic level of comfort and dignity. And we do have some systems in place like nursing homes and other forms of elderly care, although these uh, often are kind of understaffed, overworked places, and they are very prohibitively expensive for a lot of people, especially as one's care needs go up. Uh, so can you talk a bit about uh, uh, the, the systems we do have in place, but kind of the limitations of those systems and how we might need to kind of rethink about them a little more critically and what sort of systems we might want to have in place to help aid dignified old age? I think COVID has uh, provided a mirror of uh, issues around uh, residential location and uh, dignity and respect for elders and their basic predicament, uh, which the the whole nursing home industry has been uh, an outrage for many activists uh, and uh, 
supporters of uh, a life uh, of dignity and quality. And the, the commercialization and hiding of uh, the, the problems with nursing homes. I think about a colleague of ours, Charlene Harrington, uh, who has done so much in terms of the empirical work on, on nursing staffing and quality measures and has uh, really a national calling on this issue that um, we've just seen it even yesterday with uh, Governor Cuomo in New York and the, the designation of whether people died from COVID in the hospital or the nursing home. These are pressures uh, that, uh, that have camouflaged what's really going on in our society, like many others. These are systemic and structural pressures for profits in nursing homes and uh, uh, conglomerations of those and the deprivation of uh, basic uh, human care and rights. So this is, this is uh, I think, COVID-19 has really heightened uh, the awareness of this, but there has been just a seduction in uh, trying to generalize it without really getting specific about the sites and locations and what, what are the root causes and more structural uh, and uh, profit making uh, commodification of the whole field uh, is is really needs to be highlighted now. And we saw in California where the first run about who should get vaccines was uh, a triage that excluded the elderly, that they should not get it. And um, fortunately, there was a master plan on aging in California that was being developed that was brought into play and provided an opportunity for rising up of those people working on that to uh, really uh, reverse that policy. So then we saw the massive reversal of going to uh, how the elderly had some preference. So it's it's a very confounding, uh, conflicting uh, space. I think if we really want to make aging more comfortable too, we have to boost and expand social security. It's such a lifeblood. And Carol, correct me if I'm wrong on this, it used to be considered one of the, the legs to a three-legged stool. And what's the, yep. what is it called now? Uh, the three-legged stool? Or are... Uh, social security is now social insecurity. At least that's been the, the basic uh, mantra that privatizers of social security, which would send trillions into the stock market. And we, we know how uh, vulnerable that would be. But, but the whole point of the improvement of social security, I think it is now going to be on the table in the current environment and administration, the changeover that um, there are hundreds of sponsors of, of social security improvement uh, bills. And it, it absolutely should not be the case that people who are receiving social security are uh, below poverty. And this is a case for many people. Social security is the essential income, uh, is more than 60, for more than 60% of the people, it's, it's uh, a, a very high proportion. And for 20%, it's 90% of their income, and their income is, uh, is at or below poverty. And this is, this is something that has been piece of my work uh, for at least four decades. We've been fighting the privatizers of Social Security who, who basically uh, wanted to take it over. And we watched the privatization of Medicare through uh, managed care organizations and bits and pieces where the uniform uh, benefits are, are now disaggregated based on ability to buy uh, 
different parts and, and augmentations of, of uh, Medicare. So both of these programs are the bedrock. They are really the bedrock of our society and dignity and respect for all people because a third of Social Security goes to the disabled and, and orphan children and uh, children of disabled uh, persons. And when Social Security was thought to be one of the stool legs to the three-legged stool, that was assuming that pensions were a thing and in place. Teresa Gillarducci from the New School writes about how pension plans have completely evaporated. And what remains in place is largely privatized and has exorbitant costs for maintaining. So people spend down whatever was in their pension plan before they're able to get it. And now we have, I, mean, the, I think the third leg of the stool was supposed to be private savings, but how is that possible when you have so many older adults who are living in poverty? We have two thirds, I think it is, of, of older adults who live with food insecurity. The stool is pretty wobbly. Uh, I also wanted to ask kind of along uh, similar lines about the labor that goes into sustaining one's life. We've been kind of talking about this at a couple points, but um, one thing that old age really kind of brings to the fore is how much work goes into just living one's day-to-day life, cooking one's food, dressing oneself, going to the bathroom, getting in and out of bed. Um, and oftentimes uh, as one gets older, one needs to depend on others for just that very basic sort of labor of self-maintenance and self-care. So we've talked about this, about kind of nursing homes and broader social systems um, that can sometimes make that happen. But I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about uh, just that very basic uh, idea of labor that goes into keeping one's life going and in very much non-productive labor, labor that's just about maintenance. Well, just even the the thought that it's called non-productive labor, these concepts of, of what's productive and what's non-productive uh, are need critical analysis and uh, are part of uh, very much what our our work has been about calling these things out. Um, nevertheless, uh, home care, in-home care, uh, unskilled care. I mean, our policies have not supported uh, long-term care or what are unskilled care. I'm talking about um, Medicare policy and only for short periods of time uh, uh, location in nursing homes where one might, but, but only until they don't need skilled care. So it's, it's been a set of uh, uh, a whole a set of zeros in terms of the ability uh, to receive this kind of care unless unless it comes from uh, an underpaid or uh, a non-paid uh, workers who are primarily women who uh, are in the the family and the home but if 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 one doesn't have that uh, and uh, then, they're really the policy supports for home and community-based services get a lot of rhetoric, uh, and we all know that aging in place, uh, how important it is. But this work is all is yet to be done to to build uh, the base. Now, certain states uh, like Washington and and uh, Oregon have done a major job in in building home and community-based care initiatives, but they've mainly been demonstrations uh, funded uh, at the state level or built off of Medicaid waivers, which is obviously healthcare for the the, uh, indigent and disabled, blind and disabled. It's a, it's a major piece of work that that uh, I hope our uh, current new administration will uh, attack positively. And having this divide between productive labor and non-productive labor, I think, speaks to me about how abject we find dependency and weakness. This is where having an understanding of the ideology of fascism 
I think is really handy for us. We can look at how many billions of dollars are poured into the anti-aging industry, especially here in Silicon Valley. We have Peter Thiel and Jeff Bezos, you know, turning into to venture capitalists to um, to look at gene manipulation, 3D printed organs, infusions of enzymes to prevent senescence. You have these um, these biologists that are injecting growth hormone into their legs and hurting themselves, lifting refrigerators. Um, this is how far we go to avoid having to ask the question of what goes into the day-to-day -day life of someone who's aging and losing ability or capacity to complete these things. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to ask about is stereotypes, both positive and negative and their effects on how we think about and design policy and systems around aging and old age. Um, so obviously there's uh, negative stereotypes about um, kind of increasing uselessness and uh, disability. There's positive ones about wisdom and kind of having that accumulative knowledge of that one gains over a lifetime. Um, but I'm wondering if you can talk about how you see stereotypes informing policy and social systems and how we design them, um, you know, for better and worse. How are they maybe possibly misleading or uh, uh, misguiding us in how we try and take care of the elderly? There's no question that public policy has uh, segregated uh, elders uh, and it's complicated uh, because uh, technically it's seen as trying to help them, but helping them insofar as uh, one uh, doesn't have uh, uh, access to them unless one is uh, absolutely completely depleted financially or emotionally or both and physically uh, is, is a real Problem. Also, we know from uh, interactionist theory, uh, symbolic interactionism, now I'm calling on, uh, is how important it is, how people look at us. We think about ourselves and reflect back on that. And we uh, learn messages from others. We take messages from others as cues that we're... Uh, Worth, worthless or don't qualify for certain things, don't even know about them. And the whole digital dysphoria, that's what I call it, my digital uh, dysphoria is, uh, is absolutely uh, so difficult. As, uh, and I, I'm not alone. I can't be alone in this. And we're, we're just uh, we have these barriers, these new barriers that that are now you have to be able to have a phone, a cell phone, or this or that, uh, the capabilities of getting online, uh, of being able to uh, persist online to get any benefits, or if you have anybody helping you, caregivers, they're having to do that or just doing without, basically. And these stereotypes about old age... I don't mean to be so. <laughs> These stereotypes about old age, they also um, sort of frame it as natural and um, expected that older adults can't or won't belong or, or fit into the framework. Um, it goes into the, the idea of being undeserving. Um, one thing that I, I really loved in the second or third year of our collaboration, we founded a Sort of imaginary institute called the Crone Institute, the Center for Respecting Our Noetic Equality. And we were interested in resuscitating the archetype of the crone as a site of power. Witches and older women have been hunted down and ignored, mocked, um, made the, the butt of jokes. At the stake. Yes. The use the term the witch hunt. This is the word that's probably been used more in the last four years than any other term, uh, or certainly among uh, repeated terms. 
And, and that's something I want to uh, explore and invite us to explore. What, what is this notion of the witch hunt and how it ties into actually hunting uh, humanity down, uh, hunting positivity and uh, attempted uh, public policy that addresses social needs and human beings and our environment uh, in positive respects rather than destroying families, taking children, separating them, and uh, more. And uh, just even raising voice about that has been called a witch hunt and that we're all nuts to even think that these are uh, something to be concerned about repeatedly. And the stereotypes of older adults as um that either infantilized them as as sweet things with no fangs or um grouchy people that aren't tied into any sort of shared reality these um these take people out of their running take their voices out um and we see it in the social policy with medicare what isn't covered we have vision dental um wait what what's the third one yes ears, teeth, hearing. It's like the, the little red riding hood story. Um, <laughs> these are the things that we don't want older adults to have because the idea that they could advocate for themselves or actually be wolves is, um, is so um, forbidden that we'd have a, a whole population of people that would have this totally different political power and involvement in society. And I don't think this country wants that. The powers that be are, are making too much money off of, of people accepting their deaths and decline without without resisting. Yeah, for a final question I have, um, the subtitle of the book is Concepts Toward Emancipatory Gerontology. And one thing I want to ask, um, broadly speaking, um, what is maybe maybe a way of framing this what is an understanding of aging you think would need to be in place or an understanding of old age you think would need to be in place to kind of kickstart uh broader political uh changes uh needed to kind of help people live uh lives throughout even their their twilight years lives of comfort and dignity how do we need to rethink what it means to age and to grow old Well, I'll cut in that we certainly need a media watch. That was something that existed in the in the 70s and 80s with the, the Great Panthers. But there's so much on TV that I see and in the news that just fits right into these aging stereotypes. And there's no one holding them accountable and there's no public outrage. And yeah, I'm not sure exactly what a media watch would look like or how things would begin to be called out. But we also have a pretty um, defanged FCC that lets Laura Ingram batter people racially and gender-wise on primetime TV, and, and there are no consequences. And a phrase that comes to mind uh, is that we are all in this together, and we know from uh, our embodied experience and our uh, daily lives, that we are all connected. And what affects one of us affects all of us. And this is a whole new rethinking. It's not new. Uh, it's going back to at least what may be a romanticized idea of uh, our having social bonds that are uh, inextricable and that have enormous effects, roots, and, uh, and cause across the life course. Our youth are invaluable. They're absolutely invaluable. Our babies. Yeah, so as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? And I'm sure you have lots to talk about beyond just maybe another book. I'm sure you seem to be on the front line of a lot of activism and organizing. So can you tell us a bit about that? No question, we're very much into the project on precarity and um, its uh, 
effects on every aspect of life. And um, we've got many papers in process on critical public health and uh, critical theory and emancipatory gerontology going forward. But we're all about emancipatory gerontology. One thing that Carol's Nicholas really... Nicholas also has got a project. Yeah. One thing that, that um, Carol's really shared with me is the importance of, importance of mentorship and bringing new people into the field. So I think we're always looking ways to expand our collective. I'm actually about to relocate to New York where I did my master's program. And I'm excited to bring some of the emancipatory gerontology movement to colleagues that I know are already and interested. I'm also working on a book now that's bringing in psychoanalytic theory into gerontological study, looking more about what people um, shy away from, what's disavowed, and how gaining a deeper understanding of how social structures and psychic process are related can help us in our activism, especially as it comes to abolition movements and reckoning with the importance of asylum and having spaces where people feel safe enough to develop themselves. Yeah, that all sounds absolutely fascinating. So this has been a wonderful hour. Uh, Carol Estes and Nicolos DiCarlo, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for this opportunity.